Destination Eat Drink is up next. But first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <clears throat> A lot of anchors do that. <clears throat> Are you ready? Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. Let's do good. it again. What? That was good. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. Back to you on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. I need an agent. A French tort, African rice, and pastel colored homes. This week, we're in Charleston, South Carolina. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we explore a different foodie city, the unique cuisine that makes that city interesting, and fun things to do there. And this week, it's Charleston, South Carolina, which has become one of the hottest food cities in the U.S. Celebrity chefs have opened restaurants in the Holy City, taking advantage of low rents. Well, at least low compared to what they're used to paying in Los Angeles and New York City. And the flood of hungry tourists departs cruise ships every day, jet in for foodie weekends, looking for local seafood and the best that Low Country has to offer. But... Charleston is much more than just shrimp and grits and craft cocktails, and I'm starving, so let's eat. What to eat? Hey, you gonna finish that? On Destination Eat Drink. There's so much more about Charleston at DestinationEatDrink.com, plus foodie travel guides to other great cities. I've posted a new foodie travel guide to Palermo, Sicily. There's also a great guide to Maui, Hawaii. Charleston has undergone a foodie renaissance over the past few years. Low country dishes have been elevated to haute cuisine at the many high-end eating establishments in the city, but there's also many other ways to experience traditional low country favorites in more casual restaurants. Present-day Senegal and the Niger River Basin is where African rice, which is actually distinct from Asian rice, was first cultivated. The Senegalese were so proficient at rice farming that they were enslaved by Europeans and forcibly brought to the New World to work rice plantations. Rice became a huge cash crop in the South Carolina colony, but today there's little rice farmed here. The descendants of the slaves are known as Gullah, or if you're in Georgia, known as Geechee. And because of the community's isolation on barrier islands and remote parts of the state, they developed their own language, customs, and cuisine. Of course, in our modern society, much of Gullah culture has disappeared, but the Gullah Society has events, exhibitions, and programs working to preserve the Gullah culture. There's a link to the Gullah Society's website in the show notes. The most common Gullah dish in Charleston is called Charleston Red Rice, although in Charleston it's just known as Red Rice. The grain is cooked with crushed tomatoes and bacon or smoked pork sausage. Vegetables like celery, sweet peppers, and onions are also added. For real red rice, Bertha's Kitchen is a no-frills place that does it right. 
Martha Lou's is also an excellent choice. The menus at both places change daily, but red rice is almost always available. In Charleston, a tea room isn't what you think. It's not a cozy business establishment where you sit with your warm beverage and work on your laptop or quietly chat with a friend. Here, tea rooms are held at churches in Charleston each spring. They operate as fundraisers for the church. Started in the 1940s when old St. Andrew's Church needed money to repair the building, tea rooms have expanded since then to several other churches who raise money for all kinds of charitable and church endeavors. Old St. Andrew's, they still have a tea room each spring. In fact, theirs kicks off the tea room season, which normally runs from mid-March to early June. This is where you can find some traditional dishes that are usually difficult to track down at local eateries. Of course, you won't be able to find all of these treats at every tea room. My advice, arrive early, ask around. You never know who's going to show up and what they're going to bring to their local tea room. For me, my favorite is the Huguenot tort. The Huguenots were a branch of the Calvinist Protestants in France, and they once had over a million Huguenots in France, but they were persecuted by the Catholics, and their numbers soon dwindled to over 100,000 people. The Huguenots left France and found a foothold in the Netherlands, Germany, England, Ireland, Wales, South Africa, and the New World, especially Charleston. There's still a Huguenot church in the French Quarter of Charleston. So what do the Huguenots have to do with the Huguenot tort? Well, like all communities, when they came to the New World, they brought their food with them. And the Huguenots brought something called the gâteau aux noisins, a hazelnut cake. But because hazelnuts weren't commonly found in the colonies, pecans were substituted. Chopped pecans and fruit, which was usually Granny Smith apples, were baked with custard to make a pie. Today, it's not often you'll see a Huguenot tort on menus in Charleston, despite its history with the city. Fleet Landing is one place. They sometimes have it. So does Middletown Place. But you're most likely to find your Huguenot tort at the tea rooms in the spring around Charleston. If there's one singular dish that defines low country cuisine, it's shrimp and grits. It seems every restaurant in town has it on their menu. And why not? Both ingredients are in abundant supply. Who knows, maybe someday even the local McDonald's will start to carry shrimp and grits. Back in the day, the dish was actually called breakfast shrimp because it was usually served in the morning. And the grits... Well, even though breakfast shrimp doesn't have grits in the name, the grits were implied. Of course, there's many ways to prepare shrimp and grits. You can bread and fry the shrimp, or you can add peppers and onions or maybe some hot sauce. And of course, you can add cheese to the grits. But most purists will want their shrimp and grits served simply. The shrimp is sautéed in butter with salt and fresh cracked pepper and served on a bed of hominy which is grits, but it's what they call grits in Charleston. Choices abound when looking for shrimp and grits on local menus. Glass onion is one of the best that have shrimp and grits, even though they sometimes play around with the recipe. People love it there. But my favorite spot is a relatively new one called Grace and Grit. 
It serves grits in every imaginable way. Of course, they have shrimp and grits, but they also have creative takes on grits like blueberry grits, pecan grits, and pimento cheese grits. For the indecisive, there's even a flight of four different kinds of grits. And Grace and Grits has a sister restaurant right next door called The Grit Counter. I might even like The Grit Counter better than Grace and Grits. The Grit Counter serves lunch only, and here you pick your grits, pick your fixings, your sauce, and you create your own custom grits bowl. It's a more casual atmosphere, and since it's a lunchtime place, you get workers from nearby businesses grabbing their lunch bite before they head back to work. Go to DestinationEatDrink.com for more Charleston dishes. I've got lots of stuff about something called Hummingbird Cake, the famous Lady Baltimore Cake, and Boiled Peanuts. Just hit DestinationEatDrink.com, U.S. Destinations, and Charleston. Want to drink? I'll have another on Destination Eat Drink. Get the Destination Eat Drink podcast delivered directly to your phone, computer, or tablet automatically by subscribing at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, including radiomisfits.com. Charleston's craft beer scene is booming. There's tons of local brewers taking over taps in Chucktown's bars, and several breweries offer their own microbrews. Palmetto Brewing is the oldest and probably the most popular local brewery. They were founded in the mid-1800s, but Palmetto Brewing operated in the Holy City only until 1913 when it shuttered its doors. There was no local beer brewery in Charleston for 80 years until 1993 when the new Palmetto Brewing started operations on Huger Street. The taproom has many of the Palmetto's most popular beers along with smaller batch beers. And Palmetto Brewing's beer is also available at many taprooms across the state and in cans at local stores. My favorite place for a craft brew is called Edmund's Oast. They've got a huge selection of craft beer, but they're not down in the peninsula in the main part of touristy Charleston. They're a little bit out of the way, but it's worth a trip because they've got beers from around the world and a dozen or so of their own local brews. They also have an upscale menu to pair with your bevy. And even more out of the way for the adventurous is Frothy Beard. They have about 20 beers on tap, and there's always something interesting to try, like the kettled sour cranberry ale. Of course, there's always the option of foregoing the fancy suds and plopping down a buck 25 for a can of Pabst during happy hour at the recovery room. This dive bar proudly proclaims it sells more PBR than any spot in the country. I'm not certain that's something you want to brag about, but... What could go better with a can of PBR than the recovery room's tater tot nachos? There's also several classy cocktail bars in Charleston, most of them around the King Street area, including Prohibition, Rare Bit, Proof, the Belmont, and High Cotton. There's great views on the Market Pavilion Hotel's rooftop bar, but the grand level of the Market Pavilion Hotel is where you want to be for Grill 225. This is where you can get a nitroni, a martini made with liquid nitrogen that makes the drink appear to smoke. 
I've got lots and lots more places to get a bevy at DestinationEatDrink.com, including more dive bars and where to get the best Moscow Mule in Charleston. Just go to DestinationEatDrink.com, click on U.S. Destinations and Charleston. Things to do and places to see. I don't know. What do you want to do? On Destination Eat Drink. Have a question or a comment about Destination Eat Drink? Find me on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink or Twitter at Eat Destination or by clicking the About and Contact tabs at DestinationEatDrink.com. Charleston was built around the Charleston Harbor, and it's a very walkable city because most of the interesting and historic sites are on what's called the peninsula and are easily reachable by foot. I've included a link to a self-guided walking tour and my own idea for the best walking tour of Charleston at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on Destinations and Charleston. The Battery is at the southernmost tip of the peninsula and a good place to start a walking tour. After that, you'll make your way north around the peninsula. But parking can be a little tough in the battery, so if you have a car, I'd recommend going early on a weekday to get street parking on South Battery or just Uber down there. Not too far from the battery is Rainbow Row, a series of Georgian-style row houses along East Bay Street. If you're looking for a spot for an Instagram post, this is it. I've seen people lining up waiting to get their selfies taken along Rainbow Row. The houses date to colonial times, but after the Civil War, the city's economy collapsed and the houses fell into disrepair. But in the 1930s, a woman began renovating some of the houses she had purchased, painting them the distinctive pastel colors. Other homeowners followed the same color palette as they renovated the dilapidated homes on East Bay, and Rainbow Row was born. Your next stop should be the French Quarter, the oldest part of the city, with some buildings dating to the late 1600s. Even though Charlestown was originally an English colony, that's what it was called back then, not Charleston, Charlestown after the king. Even though it was an English colony, French Protestants fleeing religious persecution were among the first residents of Charlestown. This led to the strong French influence in the city, and the area was never really called the French Quarter, even though there were lots of French people living there. It wasn't until 1973 when Charleston began preservation efforts that the area was called the French Quarter, mostly as a marketing term. Either way, the French Quarter is now on the National Register of Historic Places. Charleston was the main hub of the slave trade in the 19th century. Some 40% of all enslaved Africans were moved through the port city, and by the mid-19th century, enslaved Africans far outnumbered whites in South Carolina. Without the stolen labor of the slave population, Charleston would look and feel dramatically different than it does today. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy what the city has to offer. I think understanding this history makes a visit better, even enlightening. The planned opening of the International African American Museum in late 2021 will add more texture and vibrancy to this important story. 
1856, public auctions of slaves were outlawed in Charleston, but not private auctions. So private auction spaces sprung up all over the city. And in 1859, Ryan's Mart, the building that now houses the old Slave Mart Museum, was used for the buying and selling of human beings. When the Union Army took Charleston in February 1865, the slaves at Ryan Mart were freed. The building underwent several incarnations after the Civil War, including uses as a tenement house, a car dealership, and a gallery for African-American art. Today, the museum is filled with information on the slave trade in Charleston. Taking over a derelict part of Charleston, the Waterfront Park opened to much fanfare in 1990. There's a very nice riverfront walk up here and one of the city's most popular attractions, the Pineapple Fountain. Then there's the historic Charleston City Market. There's been a market on this site since the 1700s. Stands used to sell produce to people from Charleston, but now the historic Charleston City Market is a shopping mecca with clothing, jewelry, gifts, and artwork, much of it locally made. You can even find authentic sweetgrass baskets. One of my favorite things to do in Charleston is to walk over the Ravenel Bridge. High, high above the river stretches the iconic symbol of Charleston, the Ravenel Bridge. Technically, it's the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge, named after the politician who spearheaded the movement to build a new bridge connecting Charleston to Mount Pleasant. The bridge is 2.5 miles long with diamond-shaped support towers that rise 575 feet above the river. The bridge has two design features that make it especially attractive. First, there's the cables that feather out from the towers, giving the bridge its distinctive look. But most importantly in my mind is the pedestrian and bike path along the side of the bridge. All day long, walkers, joggers, bikers all go along the bridge span and enjoy spectacular views of the city, the river, and out to the Atlantic Ocean. Access to the bridge is easy. Just park at Patriots Point and follow the path to the bridge entrance. Earlier, I talked about Gullah culture and red rice in Charleston. Another visible part of Gullah culture is the sweetgrass basket. Originally, sweetgrass baskets were used by African slaves to carry rice from the field, but now sweetgrass baskets are an art form all their own. Each basket is a unique piece unto itself, expressing the talent and personality of the artist. Sweetgrass basket makers often set up stands and tents along Highway 17 in Mount Pleasant, just over the Ravenel Bridge. They don't have regular operating hours, just if they happen to be setting up that day, they'll put out their wares. And driving along 17 and stopping to check them out is a great way to spend a couple of hours. The Mount Pleasant Visitor Center at Patriots Point, which is also a nice spot for a walk, has an exhibition of sweetgrass baskets and vendors selling their work. Be aware that these baskets are all handmade and can be pricey. Each are works of art and take many hours to create. Prices start at $30 for a tiny basket suitable for holding candy to larger works costing several thousand dollars. Tips and inside information on Destination Eat and Drink. 
I like talking about and writing about the food and beverages I encounter around the world. But when I'm not doing that, I write fiction. Check out my foodie novel, Truffle Hunt, and That Bird, my collection of short stories, at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the About and Books tab. Like I said, Charleston's very compact and very walkable. A car's not needed unless you're heading out of town. And the city has a reliable bus system that covers Charleston and will even take you over the bridge to Mount Pleasant. Of course, Uber and Lyft are also widely available. That said, if you're thinking about walking across the bridge and then seeing sweetgrass baskets in Mount Pleasant, I'd advise against that. You can easily walk across the bridge, but getting from Patriot's Point, where the bridge terminates, to where the sweetgrass baskets are on Highway 17 would be quite a hike along a busy highway, not very scenic. But you could grab an Uber from there or you could grab a bus from there. There's lots of beaches within easy reach of Charleston. The most popular spots get crowded and parking can be a nightmare during the busy summer months. So it's a good idea to get an early start. During the off-season, though, the beaches are mostly deserted. My favorite beach is at Sullivan's Island. It gets crowded like the others, maybe just a tiny bit less so. That said, parking is still a pain. But Sullivan's Island has some real cool stuff to brag about. They've got a lighthouse, which is unusual because of its triangular shape, its protruding lens room. And you can walk around the lighthouse and see it from the beach, but there's no tours of the structure, unfortunately. Sullivan's Island also has the best restaurants and bars of the nearby beaches. Poe's Tavern plays up a marginal association the island has with Edgar Allan Poe. He was stationed at nearby Fort Moultrie in 1827. Poe's has lots of fun, kitschy-type knickknacks to browse while you enjoy a pint and a bite. And my favorite spot on Sullivan's Island is called The Obstinate Daughter. Low country favorites are elevated to new heights at the OD with fresh, local, and organic ingredients. They make something called Geechee fries, which is grits formed into slabs and cut into thick strips and deep fried. Incredible. I have them every time. They also have a nice flatbread. I know. So does everyone else, but Obstinate Daughter makes theirs with an incredible butter bean puree that I could eat by the gallon. Highly recommended. I've got more about the beaches near Charleston, including Folly Beach, Isle of Palms, and other beaches, including Polly's Island, at DestinationEatDrink.com. Click on U.S. Destinations and Charleston. Lots of people make Charleston a weekend trip, and you can see a lot in three days. If you have more time, though, I would suggest this itinerary. Start in Savannah, spend two days there, Drive or take the train to Charleston. Amtrak runs between the two cities, although the Charleston station is actually outside the city in North Charleston. Spend three days in Charleston, then fly or drive to Asheville, North Carolina. There's not really a convenient way to get there by bus or train. Three days in Asheville, and you've got a great vacation. Two in Savannah, three in Charleston, three in Asheville. There's full foodie travel guides to all three cities at DestinationEatDrink.com. Well, that's it for another foodie episode of Destination Eat Drink. We drop a new one each Friday. Join me next week as we'll be about as far away from Charleston as possible in Tokyo, Japan. Yes, Tokyo. You know 
We're talking sake. We're talking sushi and some other more unique places like getting lunch in the basement of a department store. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.